Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not turned away from us, but you have turned to us. You've turned to us in Jesus Christ who has died carrying our sins on Calvary. And we know the cross has the final word, which means the final word is salvation. We thank you for that. We pray you would help us to enter into that truth more deeply, more profoundly than ever before. May we live it. May we speak of it that others might share that salvation. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the cross, for the life you have given for us. And we come to you with faith in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, the cross has the final word. As I said, in some ways, that's what I'm going to be talking about today, though though it may not seem like it at first, I want to talk about faith this morning. It's the beginning of a series of messages on faith. I'm calling it Faith Matters, what it really means to believe. Because when you're talking about faith, it affects every area of your life, every aspect of your life. And we're going to look at different aspects, facets of faith over the weeks ahead. This morning, we're going to talk about faith and salvation. Next week, faith and works. We're going to talk about faith and courage. You can't live for God unless you have the courage of faith. Faith and guidance. How do you know God's will? Talk about faith and perseverance, all the way down to faith and hope. People desperately need hope today. We're going to look at the connection between faith and hope. And so we're going to spend some time on this subject of faith. But today is faith and salvation. And you might think to yourself, well, that's, that's pretty elementary. I mean, you feel like I get it. I get it, that we are saved by faith. It's one of the first things that you learn. Some of you learned it as little children. So it's a lesson that you've learned and you can leave it behind, or that often is how we think of it. But that's not really the case. Sometimes I find that the problems I have in relationships have to do with muddled communication. Have you ever found that? So many times when Linda and I have some kind of conflict, it's, it's not real, at least in the sense that there's no reason for the conflict except we misunderstood each other. And we have to get rid of the muddle before we can reconcile. And I have to tell you, a lot of us have muddled thoughts about faith and salvation. We don't know we do. We think we get it. But here's how you know you don't get it. If you've been in this service this morning and all you can really think about is that sin you committed yesterday, and there it is, it's in your mind and you don't feel like you have any access to God that, that, you know, too many times, you failed too many times and you're becoming hopeless and you're beginning to feel like, what's the use? I just don't, I just don't have it as a Christian. Or you may find you're always in this state of unease, even anxiety, that your relationship with God, it's almost a burden. People talk about how God is there, but you don't feel God being there is an asset. In fact, it feels more like a demand. You have to step up, measure up. It's a constant pressure. 
lots of times people leave home and, and they're just glad to throw off their religion because they're tired of the pressure. And it's all because they haven't really understood faith and salvation. See, if you understand faith and salvation, it changes everything. Your Christian life becomes not a burden you have to carry. It becomes your life. It becomes this way into a salvation that brings joy and peace and direction. Faith brings life unimaginable. That's what you have with faith leading to salvation. But if you don't really understand that, if it's just words and you don't have clarity, your walk can be unsteady and lacking in peace and joy. And so I want to talk about faith and salvation so that you don't have to live with continual discouragement, but you can know that God is with you even through the hard times, even through those times when you're not doing so well and you are hardly spiritual. <laughs> no, you're, you're struggling. You're struggling. Wouldn't you like to know that God is with you even then? Isn't that what we all want? So I want to talk about faith and salvation, and I want to do it by considering what John says about it and what Paul says about it. And the reason for that is simple. Of all the New Testament writers, John and Paul speak most about faith and salvation. In fact, they say more in their writings than all the other New Testament writers combined. They speak of faith and salvation a bit differently. They don't contradict each other. They supplement one another. They, they come at it from slightly different angles. And to deal with each of them just well, it enriches your understanding, both of faith and salvation. So I want to take them one at a time, and I want to begin with John. John's interesting, almost distinctive in the New Testament, because when he talks about salvation, he uses the term eternal life. And a lot of people think that has to do with just living forever, but that's not what eternal life denotes, not at all. The Greek is actually zoane ionion. It means literally life of the age. And it depends on this ancient Jewish idea that all of creation, it can be divided into two ages. You've got the present age, which is marked by sin and death, and you have the age to come, which is the age of salvation. It's in that age that we come as God's people into his presence and we are filled with God's life. It's a qualitatively different experience than what we experience in this life. It is eternal life, but it's God's own life. That's what the life to come involves. Now, here's what John lets us know. And of course, he's just conveying the teaching of Jesus. That life of the age to come is actually available in this age, in this life. You can experience that life the life of salvation, the fullness of God's life here and now. Now, you don't experience it in fullness because, well, in this life, you get a foretaste. It's real, it's transformative, but it's only a foretaste of the salvation, the full salvation that is to come. But John makes it clear that eternal life depends not on 
your performance, but on your faith. I want you to see this. If you look in John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed the multitude. He divides the bread among them, and they all eat, and they want more. (laughs) They want more bread. But listen to what Jesus says to them. Do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life. There's that phrase, the life of the ages, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Now, that's an interesting question. It assumes that to receive eternal life, you must obey all the commandments of God. You notice it's in plural. What must we do to do the works of God? See, they're drawn on this old rabbinic idea that in the Old Testament, there are 613 distinct commandments. And they're thinking, okay, we've got to obey the commandments. But which ones are more important than the other ones? What do we really need to receive eternal life? So they asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? What, must, what commandments must we obey? How must we live? And Jesus answers, verse 29, Jesus answered, the work, notice it's singular, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. See, they want to talk about the works of God, that is, the commands of God that we must obey in order to receive eternal life or life of the age, that age of salvation. Before I can be saved, I've got to get my life right. And Jesus said, no, here is the work of God, a single work of God, which is really no work at all. You must believe. That is, you need to have faith. The way into this salvation, the way that you can receive this gift of eternal life is by putting your faith in the Son of Man, putting your faith in Jesus, not in fulfilling all these commands by obeying them. Do you see that clear distinction between those two different ways? Now, the question arises, well, what exactly does it mean to believe? And it's important to know that in John's gospel, it is not so much an opinion you hold as a relationship in which you stand. Faith is not just believing something in your head. It's not feeling something in your heart. Faith is a relationship you have with God through Jesus Christ. Let me show you that. If you put up that next slide. Look at these two passages. John 1:12. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, it should say children of God. I cut it off. He gave the right to become children of God. Now, do you see the phrase? Those who did receive him and those who believed in his name. Received him, believed in his name, are in apposition, which means they interpret one another. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to receive him. What does it mean to receive Jesus? It means to believe in him. Then you look at the next verse. Yep, we can get that back up there. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me 
will never be thirsty. Once again, they're in apposition. What's it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to come to Jesus. What's it mean to come to Jesus? It means to believe in Jesus. So when, when Jesus in the book of John and throughout the gospel of John, when it speaks of faith in Jesus, it means trusting him, but also entering into a relationship with him, coming to him. And it means receiving him as your savior and Lord. It's a relational thing. It's not, it's not some transaction. Jesus is the Savior. You must trust that and come to him. If you come to Jesus, that's faith. That's what faith is. It's the coming to him, the receiving of him. Sometimes people talk, especially children, about accepting Jesus in their heart. And there's always some theological purist some theological snob who says, oh no, you know, the Bible doesn't say you receive Jesus in your heart. And they'll, they'll use the biblical terminology and, and they get real critical. You know, this shallow, superficial American Christianity talks about accepting Jesus in your heart. Well, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, it fits. That's just our language trying to say, I'm going to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior and not with a superficial openness, but my whole being being open. I want to receive him in my heart. That's all we're talking about when we use language like that. So it is relational. Now think about what this means. This means, this means to receive eternal life, which for John, that's salvation. To receive that, it is not a matter of the works you do. It's a matter of the faith you have in the Savior. And those are two alternative paths. What must I do, Lord, to do your works? There's one work, says Jesus, which isn't a work at all. You need to believe. And by believing, he says, in effect, you need to receive me. You need to come to me. You need to come in a relationship with me. That's what the Lord's looking for, for you to come to Jesus. Now, that's how John talks about salvation and faith. Paul uses slightly different language, but on a deep level, he's really saying the same thing. Paul speaks not of eternal life, but of righteousness. Now, when we hear that word righteousness, we usually think in terms of someone who is upright or virtuous. And the word does mean that. In fact, sometimes in the Bible, it means that. Even Paul uses it in that way. But whenever Paul uses the word righteousness in connection with salvation, that's not what he means at all. See, in the Old Testament, righteousness is also a relational concept. Now, stay with me for just a moment. This is really important. Righteousness is a relational concept. It is about meeting the requirements or the expectations of a relationship, all right? So let's suppose you're a carpenter and somebody comes into your shop and they want you to make a table for them. And you make the table, you make it with great skill, you deliver it to their home on time, you charge a fair price. You are, in the Old Testament way of speaking, a righteous carpenter. Now, let's say you go home and you yell at your kids for no reason. That's just the way you are. 
Well, in that case, you're not meeting the expectations of that relationship. You are an unrighteous parent. So you can be a righteous carpenter and an unrighteous parent. In the same way, you might be involved in the community in some way. You work in food kitchens, you, you serve in various ways to where you could say you are a righteous citizen. Now, you may be a lousy father or mother. You might be a lousy spouse. So you could be an unrighteous parent, an unrighteous spouse, and a righteous citizen. It all depends on the relationship. Is that clear or is it as clear as mud? Somebody said clear. One person said clear. Caitlin, that's clear. Okay, thank you. I heard it clear over here too. Thank you. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> now y'all are just, <laughs> yeah. all right. All right, so it's always about the relationship. And you can, be, you can be righteous in one relationship, unrighteous in another. Now, here's the thing with Paul. When Paul talks about salvation, in terms of righteousness, he, he thinks in terms of you being righteous before God, okay? He's not talking about you being righteous in every aspect of your life. That is upright. There may be lots of things that aren't just right with your life, but are you righteous before God? Do you meet the expectations of God for your relationship? Okay, that's what righteousness is. Do you meet those expectations? Are you right with God? That's what he's talking about when he talks about righteousness and salvation. So how do you get right with God? How do you, how do you become righteous before him? How are you saved? Well, Paul says you can approach it one of two ways. You can't do both. They're mutually exclusive. You can do it one of two ways. You can do it the way of works, which is just what they were doing in John 6 when they came to Jesus and said, what must we do to do the works of God? You can take that approach, he says. You can do the way of works. Try to obey all of God's commandments and, and do your best. Hope that you can stand before the holy God as someone who is holy and good and righteous in yourself and thereby be ex accepted. Or... You can do it the way of faith, which I'll define a little more in a moment. Let me, let me read to you Galatians chapter 2. Listen to verse 16. A person is not justified by the works of the law. That word justified, let me pause just a moment, is very important. The word righteousness in Greek is dikaiosune. The word justified is Dikaiao. It is the verbal form of dikaiosune. What I'm trying to get you to see is that even though the words look different in English, in Greek they don't. To be righteous means you must be made righteous, justified. Okay? So when Paul talks about being justified, he says, This is how you are made righteous, how you're accepted as righteous. Same concept. Is that, is that clear? clear? Ah, there you go. Clear. Thank you. All right. So listen to what he says. A person is not justified or made righteous by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified or reckoned righteous by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, no one is going to meet their obligations before God by living up to God's standard because God's standard doesn't allow any deviation from the holy and righteous way that he has set out. So there's no salvation, no righteousness through the way of works. Instead, he says, it's the way of faith. Now, I've already shown you with John, what is faith? It's coming to Jesus. It's receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's connecting up with him. What is faith for Paul? Well, I mean, it's what John says too, but Paul looks at it a little differently, and it's basically this. It's believing the promise of God and staking your life on it. So in Romans chapter 4, let me read this to you. He cites Abraham as the father of faith. You want to know what faith is? Look at Abraham and listen to what he says. Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, God says, you put your faith in my promise and you count on me. That's what I'm expecting of you, Abraham. That's what I expect. And I count you righteous before me. You have fulfilled your obligations before me when you put your faith in me and in my promises. So that is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. In other words, what is God looking for? He's looking for people who believe in Jesus, believe that Jesus carried their sins and simply accept the promise of God, which is, if you turn to Christ, you'll be saved. So you, you trust that promise and you stake your life on it. That's what you do. Are you godly and righteous? No, Paul says God justifies the ungodly. Those are his exact words. God justifies the ungodly. That is, God reckons righteous. God accepts as righteous. God makes righteous the person who is ungodly, who doesn't obey all the commandments, he does it because they meet his expectation. What is his expectation? That you'll put your trust in Jesus because Jesus carried your sins on the cross. He carried them and carried them away. And his promise is to save you through Christ. What he's looking for from you and me, the way we get right with him is to forget about ourselves, abandoning ourselves and putting our trust in Jesus and counting on him and God's promise being fulfilled through him. Do you see that? If you take these two together, John and Paul, what do you get? Eternal life, righteousness before God, salvation, 
comes not by performance, but by clinging to the promise, by turning to Jesus. Those are two mutually incompatible ways. You have to choose one or the other. They don't fit in the same life. But see, if we put our faith in Christ, but we're a little muddled about all these things and we don't quite get it, then then we do get confused and our Christian life gets muddled and we start trying to live up to some standard and yet, well, I'm really not, I'm trusting I'll be forgiven. We go back and forth, back and forth, all confused without peace. It's a symptom of not being clear on how salvation comes. It is faith, trust, clinging to the promise, turning to Christ. That's salvation. Not what you do. God justifies the ungodly. Wow. That's, a, that's an incredible message when you think about it. Now, obviously, God cares about how we live. God cares about how we live. So when I am fulfilling my obligations with him, which is basically just accepting his gift, just putting my trust in him and in Jesus Christ whom he sent, when I fulfill that obligation, I am right with God. But I may be unrighteous in a lot of other relationships and God goes to work in me to change those things because God cares about our whole life. But listen, that's a consequence, not a cause. It's a consequence of salvation. It's not the cause of salvation. I am saved through faith and faith alone. It's so important to understand that because if you do, it changes everything about the way you live. And Paul spells that out in Romans chapter five. I'm gonna read these last two verses or the first two verses of the chapter, listen to what he says. Since we have been justified by faith, or rather through faith, since we have been justified through faith, not by works, but through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. If you really understand faith, number one, you have peace with God. You have peace with God. He's not talking about feeling peaceful. He's saying that if you put your faith in Christ, you have peace with God. God is for you, not against you. God is not angry with you. God is your loving father. He's involved in your life and he sticks with you even when you're not doing so well. You have peace with God. The battle's over, the war's over. Christ and his cross gets the final word, peace with God. Second, you have access. It says you have access into this grace in which you now stand. In other words, you step into the presence of God and you are received by God. You stand under God's favor. Your whole life is lived under God's favor. Oh, but listen, my life, I've got, I've got this problem and that problem and I struggle with this sin and that sin. I mean, you look at all that. Yeah, I get it. But do you understand the gospel at all? You have access to God and you stand under his favor even when you struggle with all those things. And to know that is to feel that you can come to God and, and open your life to him and let him help you, strengthen you, turn you, transform you so that you become a better person 
But you don't have to be a better person for God to go to work in your life and for God to give you access and for God to show you favor. What you have to do is have faith. It's have faith. We have access into this grace in which we now stand. And then he says we have hope. Hope. Hope that we will share the glory of God. Look at me right now. It's not much to see. But one day I will be filled, inundated, overwhelmed and transformed by the life of God. I will become, as C.S. Lewis put it, we will all become these creatures of such glory, reflected glory from God, but of such glory that if we were to meet such a person now, we'd be tempted to fall down and worship. See, that glory shall be ours through Christ. And that's your hope, see? That's your hope. You look at who you are, God is mindful of who you're going to be. Think about that. You look at who you are, God's mindful of who you're going to be. Well, how can we know that? Because you're saved. Well, how can I know I'm saved? Look at what's all in my life. Have you heard anything I've said? God justifies the ungodly. That means all of us. To know this is to come alive, truly to come alive.